Bonjour. Hello. And welcome to City Breaks Toulouse, Episode 2. An episode I'm going to call Churches, Religious Wars and Troubadours, because I'm going to focus on the medieval city, the time when some of the big churches were built, the time when what was most well known about Toulouse was the religious wars that were fought. I first got the idea that religion was super important in Toulouse when I found a leaflet called Religious Orders in Toulouse in the tourist office and realised that there were actually ten different ones listed, along with mention of the various buildings where you can find traces of them. I also found a whole pile of leaflets on different saints connected with the city, so that was another clue that religion had always been very important. I knew that the church of the Basilique Saint-Sernin is a World Heritage Site, and I read one or two facts, things like, in the year 1680, 35% of the city was owned by the churches, and in 1789, i.e. just before the revolution, when much of this came to a halt, there were 57 different monasteries and convents in the city of Toulouse. So all of that seemed to add up to the fact that religion was perhaps the place to start. So the plan for the episode then, going to spend a little bit of time on the two best-known churches, the Basilique Saint-Sernin and the Couvent des Jacobins, then a very brief mention of two other churches, both of which have something special to see inside them, and then I'm going to attempt to reduce the very complex to the quite simple, the just what you'd want to know to inform your visit to the city, about the Cathar Wars, the wars which pitted the Catholic Church against what they saw as a set of heretics known as the Cathars, and talk about one or two key incidents like the Siege of Toulouse, and then to finish, something that's linked but only just to all of this, and that's the existence of the wandering minstrels known as the Troubadour, who were the creative types who wandered through Languedoc, some of whom came to Toulouse, and who helped to contribute to the fiercely independent attitude which seemed to apply both to the city and to the area in general. So, to begin then, the Basilique Saint-Sernin, which has attached to it one of those stories which you're really bound to hear as soon as you set foot in Toulouse, and that's the story of the martyr Saint-Sernin, for whom the church was built. So he it was who, in Roman times, stuck his head above the parapet by refusing to have any part in the sacrifice of a bull which the Romans wanted to carry out. He said no, he was a Christian, they didn't do that sort of thing. And the Romans took their revenge very nastily by tying him to the legs of a bull and letting said bull go off round the city on the rampage, dragging him along the streets and down a set of stone steps until he died. He was hastily buried without too much ado because nobody else wanted to be in trouble with the Romans for taking him too seriously. But in the 5th century, it was decided that he really had been a saint and a basilica would be built above the place where he'd been buried. And this led to a great growth of popularity of Toulouse. People came here, pilgrims en route, perhaps to Spain, would stop off, perhaps bringing some relics to see the grave of Saint-Sernin. A few centuries after that, in the 11th century, it was decided to build a much bigger basilica, the one that you can see today, that was begun in the year 1080 and consecrated 16 years later by no lesser person than Pope Urban II. Gradually, over time, this put Toulouse very much on one of the key routes for pilgrims who were travelling from Rome to Santiago in Spain. And this route became known as the Via Tolosana, the route, the road to Toulouse put Toulouse on the map really 
And talking of maps, you might notice that there's a road just leading up to the church called Rue du Tour, T-A-U-R, as in Taurus or Bull. So it's the, the very road name is remembering the story of Saint-Sernin. If you go to visit the church, I think the first thing you'll notice is its massive size. It has an absolutely cavernous nave. There are no fewer than five chapels around it. And one thing that you may very much notice is a passageway all the way around the inside of the building, known as the ambulatory. The idea being that the visiting pilgrims, of whom there were going to be many, could walk around the church without disturbing the mass that was taking place. It's probably most famous for having this massive collection of reliquaries, things given by kings, left by passing pilgrims, that sort of thing. I enjoyed the description in the rough guide, which put it like this, quote, Body parts of all the major saints can be found here, reposing in carved and gilded boxes, set into the walls and chapels of the ambulatory, and stored in the crypt below the altar. In addition to the reliquaries, it's for its other works of art that it's also very well known. The church's own leaflet, for example, talks about seeing the work of, quote, generations of sculptors, artists, goldsmiths and cabinet makers. So, where to start? I think I'll just mention two things that you might look out for on your way round. Many of the guidebooks point to the seven marble reliefs which you can find on the wall of the ambulatory. One of Christ, a cherub, a seraph, two apostles, two angels, which date from the 11th century. And from the 14th century, six beautiful statues of the apostles. And a little line in the guidebook that points out how lucky we are to still see all these things. It puts it like this. The crypts hold numerous reliquaries and examples of gold work, which fortunately escaped the requisitions of the revolution. I think the contents of the church were taken out and hidden when things got really sticky, so that they were able to hang on to these treasures. In 1998, UNESCO designated the Pilgrim's Route to Compostela as a World Heritage Site, and included in that were several buildings along its route, two of which are here in Toulouse. So one is the Basilique de Saint-Sernin, and the other one is a building called the Hôtel Dieu Saint-Jacques, which was originally built in 1130 as a place of hospitality, really, for visiting pilgrims, somewhere for them to stop en route and be fed and watered and given a few nights' rest. It became a hospital in the 16th century, hence its name, Hôtel de Dieu, and it was a hospital right up until 1987. Today, it's an admin building for Toulouse hospitals, so it's kept that connection. And you can't visit much of the building itself, but inside it there are two museums which might be of interest, one on the history of medicine and one on medical instruments. Even if you don't visit the inside of either of these buildings, they're both ones I think you won't fail to notice. So the Hôtel de Dieu you'll see across the River Garonne from the main part of the city, and the Basilique Saint-Sernin is one of those buildings that's very instantly recognisable. It's got an octagonal bell tower, and you see it on lots of postcards. It's quite a symbol of the city, really. The other big important church is the Couvent des Jacobins, which is actually the site of the very first Dominican ministry anywhere at all, dating from the arrival in Toulouse in the early 13th century of one Spaniard called Dominique. He was actually on his way home to Spain from Rome, but he decided when he got to Toulouse that he would stay there and help the church fight the Cathars because that was the very period when their existence was being seen as a threat to the Catholic Church. I saw a description in one of the French guidebooks of the fact that he'd engaged in un combat, a fight against heresy, or rather Cathar heresy, using as his weapons the three words humilité, humility, pauvreté, poverty, 
and charity, charity, all of which, of course, makes him sound very saintly. Nowhere in that leaflet was there a mention of some of the bloodthirsty things that were done to the Cathars in the name of defending the Catholic religion. But alternative views are, of course, available. There are history books which will tell you all about the interrogation of suspected Cathars and their torture and, in some cases, murder. Anyway, don't let that put you off visiting the beautiful church. Its own guidebook describes it as, quote, a jewel of medieval art, a gigantic building with an austere exterior which astonishes visitors with its luminosity, the lightness of its vaults and its double nave that ends with a spectacular stone palm tree with 22 leaf veins. It goes on to mention that you can wander through to the Cloître des Jacobins, the cloister, a lovely green courtyard. You can go into chapels and side rooms and see, for example, 14th century stained glass, portraits of various saints and ceiling frescoes showing, quote, apocalyptic scenes. Another main reason to visit the building is the fact that Thomas Aquinas is buried there, the medieval philosopher, known for his writings linking faith with la raison, reason, and his leaning on the works of Aristotle. He was canonised by Pope Urban V in the 14th century, and despite the fact that Aquinas had never actually been to Toulouse, the Pope ordered that he should be dug up and reburied in Toulouse, because that's the city which was forever going to be associated with the Dominican movement, and they wanted to be associated with Aquinas. So this was duly done on a day in 1369, the 28th of January in fact, 150,000 pilgrims, no fewer, made their way to Toulouse, carrying his remains, and they were duly reburied when they arrived. Partly because of the church's link with Thomas Aquinas, it's actually very linked to education in the city of Toulouse. The building itself was the very first university building in the city, and later on, as the university grew, it became home to the Faculty of Theology. I think those two really are the main churches that it would be good to visit if you can, but the other two that I wanted to mention quickly are one called the Basilique Notre-Dame de la Dorade, which is down on the river, believed possibly to have been originally a pagan site, but on which a church has been built over the centuries, and which people like to visit because it is the home of something called the Vierge Noire, which would translate as Black Madonna or Black Virgin, a sculpture of Christ sitting on Mary's knee, a sculpture which has gone very dark with time so that Mary today has a dark black skin. Praying to this statue is believed by some Catholics to be a cure for ailments, and it's also thought to have a link to good fortune for unborn children. And still today, pilgrims make their way to the Notre-Dame de la Dorade. The name, by the way, is taken from the Latin word de arata, which means covered with gold. And then finally, there is a second cathedral in Toulouse called the Cathédrale Saint-Étienne, which does tend to take second place, really, to the Basilique Saint-Sernin, but which is known to be the burial place of one Pierre-Paul Riquet, who was the man who created the Canal du Midi. So he has a grave there just inside the entrance, off to the right, which people like to visit. And while you're there, you might like to have a quick look at some of the 15th century stained glass windows, Renaissance tapestries and other such goodies. So, so much for the moment for the buildings. I'd like to just think a little bit about the war against the Cathars, which seems to keep coming up whenever you look at anything historical in Languedoc in general, and Toulouse in particular. So that dates really from the 13th century when the area was riven by religious strife. The established Catholic Church 
trying to get rid of the alternative religion which was becoming very popular with quite a lot of the population, that of the Cathars. It played out all over the region. I'll be mentioning it again, for example, in a later episode on Carcassonne. First of all, let's have a look at who the Cathar actually were. So, still a form of Christianity, but one with some quite different beliefs. So, for example, they found it hard to accept that a good God would allow such evil in the world. So they preferred the idea of dualism, a belief in two gods. So they believed in a just and good God, but also in an evil God, who was said to control the material world, where bad things happened while the good God confined himself just to the spiritual world. There was a whole church grew up around this, so they had clergy, who went under the names of Bonhomme, good men, and Bonfemme, good women. They were, by the way, quite respectful towards women. It wasn't a religion where only the men took part. If you were a Cathar believer, you were one of the credents. They had their own bishops. They had a sacrament, just one sacrament, which was used at various momentous occasions. So if you became a Cathar, you would go through consolation. If you were chosen as a Cathar priest, same again. It was a form of confession. And definitely, you needed to have a consolation as you prepared for death. In many ways, they were very good Christians. They prayed. They fasted. They didn't eat much of things like meat and eggs and dairy foods. They very much preferred fish and vegetables and fruit. They had fast days when they only ate bread and water. They were said to be very pious and in fact people thought that they were Christians who actually practiced what they preached. When they looked at some of the shenanigans in the Catholic Church, some of the wealth and so on, some people formed the view that actually the Cathars were a truer form of religion than the Catholics themselves. Since Cathars denied the miracle of the Mass and thought that many people in the church should be stripped of their wealth. Clearly, there was always going to be strife between the two beliefs. And they had in Toulouse really quite an interesting history. The Concile of Toulouse, which took place in 1119, condemned Cathars and said that they should be turfed out of the city. But in fact, this didn't actually happen. In fact, in 1209, Count Raymond, the Raymond VI, all their counts seem to be called Raymond, this was the sixth, was actually excommunicated because he hadn't managed to stamp out Catharism. It was at this point the Crusades were launched against the Cathars, and that's when the true bloodshed really started. Toulouse was attacked repeatedly in 1211, in 1217 and 18, for example, but never actually fell, was never actually taken militarily. The closest the city came to defeat was in 1217, when one Simon de Montfort, who was leading the Catholic troops, did manage to find his way into the city. But in fact, the people of Toulouse rallied a year later and the French were chased away. We'll come back to this, but in 1218, Simon de Montfort actually died trying to retake the city of Toulouse. Shortly after that, along came the Franciscans and then the Dominicans, as mentioned earlier, both of whom saw it as their job to fight back against Catharism. So there were more Crusades. From 1229 onwards was the beginning of the Inquisition, when people of the church sought to root out Cathars seeing them as heretics, to make them confess, to impose penance on them. Not infrequently, this landed them in prison or even being killed. And the whole of this period was known as La Terreur. and came to an end in 1271 when Toulouse signed up to be a royal city and decided that from then on the king would replace the counts who until that point had ruled the city. That's a brief and rather dry summary of the main events, but I'd like to mention a book called Kill Them All a reference to the complete lack of mercy sometimes shown by the Catholics towards the Cathars. 
The book's written by Sean McGlynn and it's quite a complex, very detailed blow-by-blow account really of the campaigns that were waged against the Cathars, not just in Toulouse, but in the whole of Languedoc. Its very subtitle gives you some hint of what's to come because it's called Cathars and Carnage in the Albigensian Crusade. But although it's certainly full of blood and gore and terrible acts, it's also very interesting on everything that lay behind it. So, for example, fairly early on, there's an explanation of why it was that in Toulouse there were people who, for all that they were told they had to be against the Cathars, simply wouldn't go along with that. There's an explanation, for example, of the fact that this area had always had a lot of trade and therefore contact with outside places and therefore had got used to having other faiths in their midst. There were Jews, there were people with Islamic roots and so perhaps a greater tolerance than you might find in other places. There's a quote from a Catholic knight, for example, who had been asked why the people of Toulouse hadn't fought so hard against the Cathars and who replied, quote, We cannot. We were brought up with them. There are many of our relatives amongst them and we can see that their way of life is a virtuous one. There's an explanation too of why the Catholic Church was actually quite unpopular in some quarters. This was because of their habit of, for example, taking tithes for the church from the nobility or seizing their lands. There was also the fact that people looked at the bloodshed and were horrified. They saw that heretics went to the state without trial in some cases and that the crusaders didn't want persuasion or reasoning, they just wanted to stamp these people out. But others were horrified at the heresy that they thought they could see in Toulouse. So Sean McGlynn quotes, for example, one Henri of Marcy, who was an abbot in Clairvaux and who said the following about the city. It was, quote, a place of abomination, of desolation. The heretics ruled the people and reigned among the clergy. Heretics spoke out and all applauded. There's also a lot of detailed description about, for example, the siege of Toulouse, so how the inhabitants put up barricades and how Simon de Montfort outside decided he would break this deadlock and have a big siege engine constructed so that they could throw huge stones at the walls of the city. It describes how the Toulousan decided they would fight back and attack the siege engine. And just as a flavour of the writing, here's his description of the death of Simon de Montfort. Quote, Montfort himself was wounded five times by arrows, but the strength of his armour enabled him to continue the hazardous defence. One of the machines pounding his men was a manganelle, dragged down from the Saint-Sernambourg in the north of the city, and operated by women. Suddenly, a stone launched by it fell swiftly and heavily from the sky and struck Montfort's steel helmet, shattering his eyes, brains, back teeth, forehead and jaw. His head crushed in, he fell dying to the ground. He beat his breast twice and died. The author goes on then to describe the panic that ensued. They tried to cover up the body and rush it away, but news got round. This is how he continues, The shocking news spread rapidly both sides hardly daring to believe what they heard. The crusaders were filled with despair. Toulouse erupted with joy and the sounds of celebration. Peter of Vaudicelne was distraught at the death of his hero. He likened the Count's five wounds suffered before his death to Christ's at the time of his crucifixion. Who can fail to dissolve in tears, he asks in anguish. So definitely a book to look out for if you want to get really into the detail of Catharism and the struggle over it in Languedoc. Kill Them All is certainly a book from which you'll get the historical detail from all the different perspectives and end up really knowing what was what. But it's also a book that you can enjoy just for the writing. So here's a little quote as a flavour of that. Shaw McGlynn is describing 
why it was, not just because of tolerance that Raymond VI failed to overcome the Cathars, actually he wasn't the man for the job either. He puts it like this, quote, To eradicate it, that's Catholicism, would have taken ruthless single-mindedness, focused resolve and unrelenting energy. Raymond possessed none of these. He was more suited to a life of dilettantism than to political rule, especially in such a challenging environment. An admired patron of the arts and Languedoc troubadour society, he indulged his love of luxury and sex with little restraint. He had at least five wives and any number of mistresses. You feel you're getting to know the man a bit, don't you? The author's also very good at picking out juicy quotes from other people. So a little bit further on in that same chapter, he's describing the fact that not everybody thought Raymond was just tolerant, that he took this too far. And here's a quote from Peter of Vaux de Cernay, who was complaining that Raymond was really far too tolerant and put up with things he really shouldn't. And this is the example he chooses. He complains about a count who refused to, quote, even punish a heretic who emptied his bowels beside the altar in a church and wiped himself clean with the altar cloth. Peter obviously had a way with words because he then went on to explain exactly why it was that he didn't think much of Raymond using the following words. Raymond, he said, was, quote, a limb of the devil, a son of perdition, an enemy of the cross, a persecutor of the church, the defender of heretics, the oppressor of the Catholic faithful, the servant of treachery. I think we can agree that Peter didn't think much of him. In summary, from a modern perspective, we'd have to say that the Cathars were eventually defeated, but I think it'd be true to say that some of their faith lives on in the Protestantism of today. It's true, for example, that Languedoc, especially the area around the Canal du Midi, is the most Protestant area in the whole of France today. That's not to say that the Catholic Church hasn't left its mark all over the landscape too, though. This became quite clear in an essay I read from a book called Floating Through France which saw a group of writers heading down the Canal du Midi on a canal boat and having sort of writing workshops as they went. They wrote lots of essays that were published in the book, one of which is actually called Land of the Troubadours and in which the author writes the following, quote, Cathedrals, basilicas and church spires dominate the landscape, while monuments and plaques everywhere tell the stories of relics, saints, martyrs and the thousands of pilgrims who crossed it so very much about the dominance of the Catholic Church in the area. It's harder to find so much to read from the Cathar side, but in addition to Sean McGlynn's book, if you like your history in novel form, or rather in the form of a novel, then you might look out for a book called The Labyrinth by Kate Moss. It's a novel which weaves a plot through Toulouse, Carcassonne and other places nearby from the 13th century and links them to a modern-day story centering around an archaeologist called Alice Tanner. A book you can definitely lose yourself in. I certainly did. It's quite long, quite complex, quite gripping. A colleague actually said to me, well, if you buy a book called Labyrinth, perhaps it's only reasonable that you should get lost in it. And I thought, yes, that does sound about right. Okay, so, so much for the religious wars. The last little section, I'd like to just talk about those wandering poet minstrels who seem to people the longer dock of a similar period to the one we've been talking about and went under the name of the Troubadours. They wrote their songs and poetry not in Latin, as of course was more usual, but in the language of the region, the language called the Occitan. That's where the word Languedoc comes from. It's the area where the tongue, the long, is that of Oc. I think Oc might be the word for yes in that language. Their works were all about heroism and natural beauty and philosophy, honour, love, usually passionate, unrequited love. 
And, as you may imagine, this heady free-thinking did rather anger the Catholic Church. When they wrote so much about physical love and adultery and romance, the Church was in opposition, naturally, and they even went as far as to write satirical poems and songs about the Church itself. So no wonder then to read that many of the clergy thought of the troubadours as rather subversive. In some cases, they were actually linked to the Cathars. They were both sets of people who didn't get on with the established religion, and in some cases, they clung together rather. So their works, key themes, as mentioned, things like chivalry and courtly love, often they extolled the virtues of one particular lady, generally somebody who was completely unattainable. I found a couple of quite interesting points on the troubadours in an essay by Joanna Bigger in the book Floating Through France, which I've just mentioned. So, for example, she points out that this idolising of of women was something that was seen then in slightly later literature, which owed its roots to the troubadours. So people like Dante and Petrarch, the Italian writers who had their unattainable women, Beatrice in Dante's case and Laura in Petrarch's case, were really basing their ideas on what they'd read by the troubadours. And Joanna Bigger also goes on to point out what she calls the irony of, quote, placing the idealised lady on an untouchable pedestal, that being in sharp contradiction to the actual status of women who were controlled by fathers, husbands, or the lords for whom they worked, and by a highly misogynist church. The very first troubadour was believed to be one Guylaine de Petieu, who was actually the father of Eleanor of Aquitaine, a better known one, perhaps someone called Pierre, P-E-I-R-E, not quite sure how you pronounce it, Vidal, who actually wrote for one of the Counts of Toulouse, Raymond V, but who did a lot of travelling as well. We know he went to Aragon, to Provence, to Italy, Hungary, Malta. Legend says he actually ended up marrying the daughter of the Emperor of Constantinople, no less. So he wandered through Europe, writing things which found favour. Many love songs on traditional themes, political songs for his various masters, and a history book that I read about him made mention of his ability to give very incisive criticism of various things. It talked about his critique being plein de verve, so full of verve, and the fact that he had une pénétrante intelligence, so a penetrating intelligence of people and of things. So, in summary, I hope I've managed to give you a little flavour of medieval Toulouse, the colourful history of faith, of religious persecution, of the troubadours, and an indication of some of the places you might visit in the city today when you can learn a little more about these things. In next week's episode, I'm planning to focus very much on one building in the city, the Capitol, perhaps the best-known building in the whole of Toulouse. I'm going to have a look at some of the turbulent moments of history connected with it. I'm going to talk a little bit about what there is to see and to learn if you go on a tour inside it. And I'm going to talk about its connection to some of the other very well-known buildings in Toulouse, the ones known as the Maison Particulier, the beautiful buildings that the 16th century merchants built for themselves in the city of Toulouse, using the wealth that they gained from the financial upturn of the city, which lasted about 60 years, I think, in the 16th century, and which was all built around one thing, namely woad. That economic boom has left us really quite a lot of things that we can visit in the city today. So I hope you'll look forward to that and join me for that episode. For the moment then, I'm just going to sign off by thanking you very much for listening. Mille fois merci. And signing off in French, of course. Au revoir. <laughs>